Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We're learning more about what happened to those four Americans who were attacked and kidnapped in Mexico. Latavia Washington McGee, the woman traveling for the medical procedure, survived the ordeal. Her friend Eric Williams was shot in the legs three times and remains in a Texas hospital tonight. Their two other friends, Zindel Brown and Shaid Woodard, were killed. In a moment, I'll talk to an expert on border culture, and he'll share his research about the violent drug cartels at the border. Plus, where did COVID-19 come from? The former head of the CDC says he was left out of conversations with Dr. Fauci and other scientists after he expressed support for the Wuhan lab leak theory. And a scathing report on the Louisville, Kentucky Police Department after an investigation following that botched raid that killed Breonna Taylor. The DOJ says the Louisville police routinely used excessive force and practiced, quote, an aggressive style of policing against black people. More on that ahead. But let's bring in our panel right now. We are here with law enforcement guru John Miller, famously fearful flyer Molly Zhang Fast, the man my mom misses when he's not on the panel, LZ Granderson, and former Trump White House comms director and star of The View, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and also joining us from Austin to talk about what's going on at the border is Professor Ricardo Ainsley of the University of Texas at Austin. We will be with you momentarily, Professor. Okay, John, tell us what your reporting has found today about that, the ongoing crime story of the Americans who were ambushed. Well, they're in the stage now of kind of trying to organize three things. Number one, which is the handling of the two living victims and the two dead victims. The autopsies are complete. Those bodies are coming back. The two living victims... The FBI has a very well-developed process for victim witness assistance, which involves, you know, treatment for trauma, um, the ability to question them with trauma-informed kind of interview tactics. But they need to know what they know. How many people did you see? How many times were you moved? Where do you, what did you see along the way between places you were taken to? Were there radios, phones? They're going to, they're going to have to go through all that. But they realize these people have been through a lot. So that's going to take time. So that's one. Two, they've got to deal with the Mexican government about how are we doing this together? You know, the FBI's role is to provide support and intelligence, but are we going to bring these perpetrators here and prosecute them for crimes against American? Are they going to be prosecuted in Mexico? Who's got the lead on that? And what's the answer to that? The answer to that is a discussion, because right now you've got the FBI who's all in and you've got the Mexican government who has a complicated thing here. You've got a president who would like the story to tamp down and go away. You have a tourist industry that they're trying to get going again. Uh, You have a cartel that controls that area that realizes they made a mistake and, you know, they want to back out of this. And you have the whole rest of the scene with federal law enforcement and the Department of Justice saying, that's all great. But we need to get these guys. Yeah. So obviously it's complicated. Let's bring in Professor Ainsley. Uh, Professor, I know you've done research in that area. So tell us about the border area and that particularly that area between Brownsville, Texas and Matamoros, where they were killed. And does the drug cartel, the drug cartels, plural, have free reign there? Uh, Thank you for having me on. Yes, I think that's one of the uh, most problematic states in Mexico, and it has been for quite a long time now. Uh, There's been a tremendous amount of uh, cartel-inspired violence. Uh, It's also uh, moved from being primarily about moving drugs to 
other kinds of ancillary crime that's become part of their business model for some time now, including kidnappings, extortions, and so on. So it's a very violent part of Mexico, the state of Tamaulipas. So when you say that kidnappings are part of their business model, kidnapping Americans or kidnapping anyone? I mean, and then, and then what? They just hold them for ransom, but they don't kill them? Well, you know, historically, Americans have been, I mean, there are exceptions, but historically, Americans have not been the target of these uh, drug cartels, criminal uh, organizations, primarily because of what's happening now. Uh, The activation of the American law enforcement, of U.S.-Mexico relations, that is something that the cartels have sought to avoid. So uh, that Pandora's box has been opened with this case. And so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But no, historically, Americans have not been prime targets. They, uh, the kidnappings are often uh, short-term things where people are held for periods of time and then released if there's ransom paid. But oftentimes the ransoms are paid and they keep holding them and subsequent ransoms are paid. Sometimes they get their family members and loved ones back and sometimes they don't. And one more question, Professor, before we bring in the rest of the panel. Are these drug cartels manufacturing fentanyl? Are they taking fentanyl from China? Are they loading it into the tractor trailers that we hear so much about to go through the uh, checkpoints into the U.S.? And then are there other U.S. drug cartels or organized crime rings that are picking it up there and distributing it? Do you know how that's working? Yes. Well, historically, these drug cartels are very nimble. They're very uh, entrepreneurial and creative. So whatever drug is selling on this side of the border, they figure out a way of getting involved in that. It, it used to be crystal meth, and they started manufacturing that in Mexico and shipping it across. So, uh, and, and the Mexican government uh, sometimes tracks the, uh, the, the chemicals that are needed to manufacture some of these drugs. And often they're coming in on the Pacific coast from places like China and so on. And uh, and then the organized crime groups get the necessary elements and they start manufacturing these drugs and finding many different ways of getting them across our border. Mm. Alyssa, I want to turn to you now. Um, what should the White House be doing in this situation? Well, first and foremost, reiterating the existing travel advisory to not go to this area of Mexico. Um, That was standing before. Obviously, these individuals probably were not aware of it when they chose to go there. But these are things that have to be heeded. Um, They need to get ahead. You know, to John's point, this would seem like something that needs to be tried in the States. Um, These are Americans, even though, you know, this is a close ally. We work closely with President Obrador. But these people need to be brought to justice in the United States. I would hope to see them get ahead of this. And I think it's a moment we so often immigration, border security becomes this politically fraught issue where everyone just kind of goes to their, you know, political corner. This is a good reminder that this is our close ally of our southern border, but there are entire communities in Mexico that are run by the cartels, which are no better than a militia and some terrorist organizations. So we need to be aware of the dangers that exist there and what we can do in alliance with the Mexican government to combat them. Elsie, it's so tragic to think about this woman who's going with her three childhood friends across the border to get, I think, elective medical procedure of some kind. And then this happens. The world is a dangerous place. And I don't want to oversimplify this, but you're absolutely right. I mean, we have to remember that as 
the economic gap between citizens around the world continues to grow. It isn't just an American problem. It's a global problem that Americans are going to be seen as prosperous and we're going to be seen as easy targets. And you need to be cognizant of where the U.S. is telling you where to go and where not to go. Remember when Biden had the withdrawal, he told citizens in Iran over and over again to get out. Like, we need to listen. Yeah, you mean in Afghanistan? Afghanistan, I'm sorry, Afghanistan, yes, yes. But we need to listen to our State Department. They're not here to prevent us from exploring the world. They're also here to keep us safe. And that area has been on the list for a very long time. Molly, your thoughts? I mean, I just think there's been so much politicization of Mexico, and and this is really the legacy of Donald Trump, among others, you know, where he said all of these really terrible things about Mexicans, that I think it is really important that this is not a political, you know, situation. And I do think Republicans have used the border as for, you know, and remember, border crossings are actually down now. So it is interesting, you know, this is like a favorite kind of cudgel of theirs. And I hope that they won't get involved in that and they'll just see this for what it is, which is, you know, terrible. John, I mean, the same question that I asked to the professor, which is, do we know how this works? The fact that we can't seem to turn off the spigot of fentanyl that's coming into this country from Mexico, because as we know, it's coming in through legal border crossings in these tractor trailers. What is the problem? How can we crack down and find that before it, you know, kills more teenagers? Well, if you ask us, the Mexican cartels, which are multi-billion, not million, multi-billion dollar businesses, and there's about five of them, uh, are the problem. If you ask Mexico, we are the problem. If there wasn't the American consumer vacuuming up fentanyl pills and every other drug the cartel comes up with faster than they can make them or launder the money... Not to Uh, mention guns. Not to mention guns and, you know, human trafficking, all kinds of things that cartels are in the business of. But the Mexican government, you know, looks at it as, please stop looking down your nose at us. You are the problem. Without the consumer, there is no market. So we have found the enemy and it is us together. Mm. Uh, Professor, about the medical tourism aspect of this, is it common? I and mean, we've heard how common it is for Americans to travel to Mexico. But is it commonplace for Americans to cross over that Brownsville um, area into Matamoros? All across the U.S.-Mexico border, many any major city on the border has uh, medical tourism going on all the time. It's been going on for many, many years. It's uh, inexpensive, it's accessible. Uh, You can get uh, procedures done for much less than it costs here, a third to a half, uh, two thirds less than it would cost here. Uh, And so there's, and also for the upper tier of uh, the medical profession in Mexico, literally the quality of care is probably every bit comparable to what we get here in the United States. So um, that, it makes it a a great, uh, very appealing, right? And uh, if you have to pay a $3,000 deductible to get certain kind of procedure done and you can get it done in Mexico for less, then you you may travel to Mexico to do it. Um, I would say most of the other uh, places like Tijuana and Mexicali and... uh, uh, Nuevo Laredo, even uh, Juarez, they they don't have uh, currently the level of 
crime that we're seeing in Tamaulipas and that we have seen for a long time. Those other cities have had moments where there was a kind of a, a peak of crime, uh, two or three years, where there was tremendous, horrific violence taking place. And at those times, all of that uh, tourism, um, uh, medical or otherwise, is really shut down sure. pretty extensively. But then it starts coming back. Professor Ainsley, thank you very much for your expertise and sharing it with all of our viewers tonight. Great to have you here. Stick around, panel, if you would. When we come back, a deep dive into what we know and what we don't know about the origins of COVID. Plus, why Ron DeSantis says he will send a boat to the Bahamas to get Djokovic to Miami. All right, the former head of the CDC says he was left out of discussions between Dr. Anthony Fauci and other scientists investigating the origins of COVID. Here's what he testified to in the House today. Why do you think you were excluded from those calls? I, I, because it was, I was told to me that uh, they wanted a single narrative and that I obviously had a different point of view. Okay. Science has debate and they squashed any debate. Okay, we're back with the panel. So basically, his feeling was that he was leaning towards the lab leak theory, and Dr. Fauci was leaning towards the Wuhan wet market or natural transmission theory. And the way that Dr. Redfield has been making it sound for a long time, and not just today, this has been going on for months, is that basically Dr. Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins of NIH weren't interested, according to Redfield, in entertaining the lab leak theory. I mean, that's how I'm reading it. Um, Alyssa, you know both of all of these gentlemen. You were in the White House during all of this. What was your impression? Was there a tug of war? What was your impression? There was a tug of war. And I thought that Dr. Redfield's testimony was very valuable because I was there in real time. And Dr. Burks and Dr. Redfield were very open to the idea that it was a potential accidental lab leak. Dr. Fauci, and to this day, he's an incredibly credible person. He's somebody I consider a friend. But he was dug in on the other side. And I think it did a disservice because with science and with the medical profession, there's not always going to be unanimity on what we think the outcome of something like this is. And there was this effort that it was, this is the only thing we're going to talk about. And people were diminished if they tried to put forward the other idea because Redfield's been saying this for the last two and a half years. Why was he dug in? I mean, why was he not open to this other possibility? I don't know. I mean, just knowing Tony Fauci, he's... No, because I think there was... I want to say this carefully. There was a media element to it. Fauci was throughout the Trump administration trusted and seen as somebody who was an independent doctor who was not Trump aligned. At times, Dr. Burks and Dr. Redfield were seen as a bit more aligned with Trump. And I think that that made people diminish their viewpoints, despite the fact that both of them, I mean, Dr. Burks has done more to combat AIDS in the world than probably any living person. This is an incredibly credible doctor. Redfield, a virologist, somebody who's dedicated his life to the medical profession. So I think there was an element of politics that did factor into it. In fairness to Dr. Fauci, he has always said that he's open to more investigation, but that he didn't have any basically visibility into what was happening in the lab in China. Here's what he said a year and a half ago to Senator Rand Paul when this came up uh, in May of 2021. Will you in front of this group categorically say that the COVID-19 could not have occurred through serial passage in a laboratory? I do not have any accounting of what the Chinese may have done, and I'm fully in favor of any further investigation of what went on in China. So here's what's also interesting, LZ, is that 
Back then, in May of 2021, so a year and a half ago, CNN had reporting, and I remember hearing it even prior to that, just sort of in rumors, but then CNN was able to confirm, that there were several scientists at the Wuhan Virology Lab that got sick in the fall of 2019. So before people in the United States started getting sick with COVID, they came down with symptoms so bad that they had to go to the hospital. Uh, what what doesn't that lend itself to the last week theory? I, I I saw that report as well. I remember hearing that going around, and then it kind of went away, like you know, like acid rain kind of went away, like it doesn't happen anymore. Listen, it's impossible to talk about COVID without talking about the politics of COVID, from the handling of it, the messaging of it, and the fact that Dr. Fauci did appear. I'm not sure if it was behind the scenes, but from a viewer looking on the outside in, it looked as if he was a adversary of the administration as opposed to working hand in hand. And so when you have that. You can't help but have this sort of, I guess, hard feelings coming from other scientists who weren't part of the, you know, cool kids or however you want to describe it. But the reality is, is that COVID got mucked up because we politicized it before we realized what it actually was. We didn't politicize it. Right. I mean, I don't I don't feel like I politicized it. I mean, I think there was a sense in which Republicans ran against COVID for, you know, and that's what we're seeing even now with DeSantis. I mean, look- but what Republicans say is that it was Democrats who poo-pooed the lab theory because President right. Trump thought it. But ultimately, they'll either in you know, an accidental lab leak or an accidental situation from the wet market, it doesn't much matter, right? I mean, the the whole thing with this lab leak is is that there are people on the right who want to say that this was, you know, that somehow this was intentional. And but those are two, that's, it's an important point. It's very different, though. Right. Accidental lab right. leak is a credible exactly. theory. Saying this was some kind of bioweapon is not a credible but you theory. see where the, I feel like the far right is going to the, like, we're going to blame. And and look, this was not handled well. China should have, they could have been way more on it. And I think everyone agrees with that. But ultimately, now we're in a situation where the virus is here, right? Sure, but it matters in that, if they were handling, you know, these bio threats in an improper way, we do need to know. No, we definitely do. But I don't necessarily think that it cal- it changes the calculus of, you know, they need to fix the wet markets and they need to fix the bio labs. Like both need to be fixed because they're both problematic. Can um, I just? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, just from an intelligence standpoint, it's frustrating because. Uh, you're not in a permissive environment. You go where the Chinese let you go. You see right. what the Chinese let you see. So when the uh, World Health people, you know, got their lab tour and then went to follow up with, we need to look at some documents and we need a second tour, part two and three of that never happened. Right. So where you have is, you know, an intelligence community consensus where you have a bunch of agencies that say we don't have enough information to take a position. Uh, we'd love to, but we don't have the, the data. You have the FBI who says with moderate confidence that it appears to be a lab leak. And that's not just agents and analysts. That's the FBI scientists, you know, whose game was brought up um, after the anthrax, you know, uh, incidents to be, you know, some really superb biological experts. And then you have the Department of Energy who says we go for lab leak, but with low confidence, not because they don't believe their own theory, but because they understand the data isn't there to prove it. And the crime scene is gone. Right. We can't go back. We can't pull those videos. We can't recreate those moments because it's too cold. So the only way we're ever going to learn this is down the road. And this is not impossible. 
some human source may come forward and say, I have the answer and this is how I can prove it. I was just going to say there were 2019 State Department cables from the Wuhan lab that warned this is a pandemic waiting to happen. Low safety protocols. They weren't taking it seriously. And I just want to say I wouldn't put it past the CCP to actually deflect blame and create the wet market outbreak theory and blame it on their own people rather than take responsibility for mismanaging the Wuhan lab. Because one can be held accountable and the other is like just a guy in the market. A bat. Um, Yeah. All right. Thank you all. Next, a scathing assessment from the DOJ about the Louisville Police Department, uncovering how officers there routinely treat black people. A scathing report today from the DOJ details widespread discrimination and excessive use of force by Louisville, Kentucky police officers. The review was launched following the police raid that killed Breonna Taylor. Investigators finding that the police department specifically targets black people as well as disabled residents and sexual assault victims. The report says, quote, for years, LMPD has practiced an aggressive style of policing that it deploys selectively especially against black people, but also against vulnerable people throughout the city. Okay, we're back with the panel now. Um, So, Elsie, in other words, that awful botched raid of Breonna Taylor, it wasn't an anomaly. Of course not. We all knew this. We all knew this. Nothing from the report shocks me. Nothing. Not a single thing. And it's, unfortunately, it's going to get politicized, of course, right? Because then you're going to have people who are on the left and saying, we need to do something, and someone from the right is going to yell, you're too woke, or they're going to yell, you know, you, you know, MAGA is better than Black Lives Matter because you're Antifa. Like, it's just going to get all jumbled up, right? And we're going to end up in the same place over and over again. Remember, when we were covering Ferguson, after President Obama's administration did the investigation of that police department and what we saw there, you would have thought that would have triggered some sort of widespread sweeping to make sure this kind of behavior didn't exist in our police departments. What happened? Right. Went away, right? So unfortunately, I do not have a lot of hope for this beyond what the municipality is going to do about it, but this should spark a widespread conversation in a real healthy way with police unions, well, but I it mean, won't. I don't know if I'm as pessimistic as you are, LZ, just because George Floyd did spark a, a national conversation, and then there were reforms that were made. And some police departments did make reforms after uh, what happened in Ferguson, but I hear you. The fact that it's 2023 and this report is coming out is appalling. And so, John, because you know so much about police and everything, here's what, uh, let me just play for you what Attorney General Garland, how he described the Louisville police today. Some officers have demonstrated disrespect for the people they are sworn to protect. Some have videotaped themselves throwing drinks at pedestrians from their cars, insulted people with disabilities, and called black people monkeys, animal and boy, this conduct is unacceptable. It is heartbreaking. So, John, how does that in this day and age go unchecked within the police department? Well, I'm not sure it went unchecked. First of all, you have to understand that the construct of your average DOJ civil rights uh, division report on a police department is they do a deep dive and they feel they're not doing their job often if they don't put all the worst things they can find together in a bunch to justify their study. Yeah. So but, if I mean, you it's pretty take, bad. It's pretty bad. But like anything else, if you take a step back and add some perspective to it, you know, the police officer who referred to somebody as a monkey, the person that he was referring to wasn't there. 
He was searching a car. It was eight and a half years ago. So in this report, they collected every horror story they could find. They front-loaded it and said, and this is why we have to fix it. Now, the report does say that the Louisville Police Department has spent the last two and a half years plus um, bringing in its own consultants, doing a top-to-bottom assessment, making its own changes, putting into effect a lot of the recommendations that the DOJ report comes up with and trying to get ahead of this to fix it because we cannot lose in this conversation. Louisville is a largely white city with um, a, a black neighborhood um, on the west end of town on the north side. Um, their world's record for murder was 117 murders for 650,000 people um, until 2020 and 2021, where you know that went to 160 and then 170, and 117 of those were black people. So they have a terrible crime and violence problem in a poor neighborhood where there's a lot of police activity. There's nothing in the DOJ report about the crime levels. It just says there's poverty and, and problems, um, but police are disproportionately active in that area. They're disproportionately active in every city in the area where there are the most shootings and the most violence because people need them. How did you forget the word poverty in that description, though? <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> the, the relationship between crime, education, and poverty... But are, the word poverty are, is in are, the ...are well, well known, yes. but... Yes, they're going to be in an area where there's violence, but they also tend to be in an area where there's poverty. Right. That's actually the baseline that we need to be talking about when it comes to criminal justice. But how do you before. separate those but two I, things? Because I think one of the problems we're struggling with is we kept trying to separate race, poverty, and crime, and policing, can, when you can't really have that discussion without bringing them together and saying, we know in poor areas of any city... There's going to be more crime, which means more police response but, and more focus. Yeah, go ahead. But can't we just say that the police are not supposed to hurt people and that that is a sign they're not doing their job right? And when you have things like what happened with Breonna Taylor, I mean, that there was no world in which that should have happened. No, I mean, you know, you don't do that kind of thing. You don't shoot into, you know, and kill someone who's sleeping. So I think, you know, it doesn't matter what is happening. The police have a job, which is not to kill people. But John's saying it's changed since then, since the Breonna Taylor. Well, since they've, the Breonna Taylor, they've, yes. They've done a lot of work <clears throat> since then. But we have think, no proof okay. of that. No, go but ahead. But I mean, we're, I, th- we, I, think, we, we, I think we have some proof of that. Which recruitment is, is, made reforms. You know, they've, they, they have put in a lot of reforms, and they have one piece of proof of it is that they opened the doors to DOJ. They were fully cooperative with that investigation. DOJ says that. Louisville says that they're a police department that realizes out of a thousand cops, they had a group of bad apples. They had these incidents that occurred over many years. A group of bad apples. But I was just going to say, I do think recruitment is a huge issue because there should never be a person who holds a badge or a gun who calls a black person a name of that nature. So I think there is something about are we funding them to the levels that we're able to recruit the kind of people who aren't bad actors. When I was at DOD, you know, we looked at in recruitment, you don't want people who are going to have God complexes. You want people who can handle authority and aren't going to use excessive force. These are clearly some bad actors there. So I want to know what they would put in place that would actually recruit people who are not going to endanger the very communities. Louisville PD does not disagree with the idea that they had officers that treated people badly. And that's been part of what they've been involved in. I also think the bar is so low here. I mean, these are the police. They're supposed to keep you safe. They're not supposed to hurt you. 
Yeah. Girl, please. <laughs> that's the job. That's, <laughs> but the fundamental I mean, job of that police. That is the fundamental right. job. Protect, 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 you know, that, yeah. that, that ship sailed, you know, with the well, slave patrol. And, you, like eons and eons right. ago when police first started. I believe that, one, we'll know if there's a real change when police officers no longer feel under duress if they're going to be a whistleblower. Right. They don't feel like they're going to be ostracized. When they witness something that is not proper, if those police officers feel comfortable reporting that, then we have change. Right. I don't see that yet. So and, that's, and, a, and that's the, a big move in policing, and, which and, is and the, the other, I would just, just want to add piece. quickly, the, the other thing I would say is that you have to have police officers who live where they work. Yeah. You have to have them live where they work. As long as they can show up, harass people, and go back into their communities and not have to deal with the repercussions of what they did with the citizens who live there, and you have police officers who won't report each other because they don't feel comfortable, you're going to continue to have this cesspool. So I hear what you're saying. There's a lot of stuff on paper, but officers who are watching this television show right now know what I'm talking about. They don't feel comfortable saying, I saw this sergeant doing X, right. Y, and Z because they feel they're going to be ostracized it and make, kicked out. It makes them like every other career. Doctors yeah. aren't reporting on doctors, and nurses aren't reporting on nurses, and... I, I mean, I sometimes reporters are reporting on reporters, but yeah, yeah, so that's I, an I, exception. Stick around on the show. We will be. <laughs> yeah. Doctors are not fearing for their lives, right? I mean, I've seen reporting about these gangs in Los Angeles and the poli gang police gangs in Los Angeles. I mean, I think that... I can't I think, believe... We're yeah, going but, but, to this otherworldly place. There are 850,000 cops in America. They show up every day. They risk their lives. And yes. we do a big story when they get killed and feel really bad for them. And then we put a disordinate, um, overblown focus on the bad ones because we should. It's not news when a dog bites a man, should, but when a cop does something bad, that deserves yeah. attention. Yeah. But we can't normalize it because even the DOJ report, which is scathing, said most Louisville police officers do their job in a good way and yeah. try hard to protect I, their I, community. Yeah. I, if I could so, just, share, quickly, yeah. just share one yeah. quick story. So I grew up in Detroit, and I grew up loving police officers. You know why? Because of the Blue Pigs. Right. Those from Detroit would know what I'm talking about. It was a band that used to play, used to go into schools all the time. I love cops. Until one day I was walking home from school with the gallon of milk my mom had sent me to get, and there was a knee in my back and a gun in the back of my head because the police officer thought I was in charge of some sort of breaking in, like mm. gang activity. And you know what reoccurred over and over again since then? It wasn't the Blue Pigs. So I hear what right. you're saying about the, the bad apples. My original point was, until you have some of those farmers saying, get those apples out of there before they make it to the stores, we're going to mm -hmm. continue to have that problem. Yeah. I appreciate that story, and I think that that's really helpful to know. Yeah. It's an important context. And I also think that the report shows that if you can say things like that with impunity in your in your office or in your patrol car, it means that nobody's, you know, the other people aren't ostracizing you and they're not cracking down. But hopefully because of this horrible tragedy, as you say, that they are bringing in consultants and things are changing. And we'll see. But well, I mean, and they've, they've done a lot already. Yeah. I mean, the report says that. That's good. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to end on that note. Everyone <laughs> stick around. We have more excerpts coming out from Dominion's lawsuit against Fox. We'll read you the newest revelations next. New court documents again show Fox, Fox executives and hosts did not believe the election lies they were spreading on the air. Some of them couldn't even stand Donald Trump, who they pretended to worship. 
on the air. Fox claims this defamation lawsuit is, quote, an unprecedented assault on the First Amendment. Dominion Voting Systems accuses Fox of seeking a First Amendment license to knowingly spread lies. We're back with John Miller, Molly Jean-Fast, Elsie Granderson, and Alyssa Farah. Okay, so um, <laughs> I barely know where to begin. <laughs> I mean, this, this Can just Can I just goes, start off with, yeah. until these documents came out in discovery and we got to see them because people didn't remember what they put in their emails, nobody was telling on anybody in right. that company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just staying thematic a here. Thematically good, I like that. That's a light motif right. through the show. I see that. <laughs> so basically what Fox says is that it's an effort to publicly smear a media organization just for having the temerity to cover and comment on allegations being pressed by the sitting president of the United States and it should be now recognized for what it is, a blatant violation of the First Amendment. But Alyssa, that's not all they were doing <laughs> and because Rupert Murdoch has admitted under oath they were in his hosts were endorsing the lies that Trump was spreading. Well, and my favorite Rupert Murdoch quote from this is it's not red, it's not blue, it's green. This is all about money, it's right. all about ratings. No way. Like, so some of us who've known Tucker Carlson for many years, we've had this kind of ongoing debate of is it <laughs> is it all an act or has he self-radicalized? And I was on the side of I actually kind of thought he was buying what he sold. But oh, no, no. You read this. He, he's more anti-Trump than I am. Like yeah. the man can't stand him. He thinks the administration accomplished nothing. But then he goes on air every day to say the polar opposite. And the, I just have to say the audacity he's had the last three nights to continue to espouse lies about mm-hmm. January 6th in the midst of this lawsuit shows how untouchable he thinks that he is. He knows he's a cash cow for Fox News. He knows that it's not his head that's going to roll. It's probably going to be someone a little lower on down. And, I mean, it's, it's misleading the American people and shameful. Such a great point because he also must know that his viewers are so locked in mm-hmm. that they don't know that this is happening somehow. And he can continue to you know, mislead them. That's the scary part. I mean, it's the siloed media. You have this right-wing media where you're the people who need to see the Tucker Carlson, you know, messages will never see them because they're going to watch OAN and they're going to watch Newsmax. And remember, Fox did this because they were worried they were losing market share, not to CNN, but to OAN and Newsmax. Newsmax. Absolutely. But I think that some of it will sneak in anyway. I was thinking, I was was with you, Molly, for the past few weeks where I was thinking, oh, their viewers will never see it. I think that they channel surf. I think that people channel surf. I think that they do walk past a New York Times headline and it catches their eye. I think that it is going to sneak in. Now, I don't know if they'll care. Right. But I do think that somehow it's going to sneak in uh, through osmosis. And if there's a trial, I mean, you're going to have those guys on the, you know, sitting on the witness stand having to say, and they're not going to be able to lie because there are tweets. So the trial is expected to start mid-April. What would make it not go to trial? Basically, if Dominion settles. Basically, if Fox says, we'll pay you the $1.6 billion. Right. So if Dominion settles, um, the discovery still lives. The facts are out there. And the story's been told. But you don't get the the show of the trial. And remember what kind of trial we're in. I mean, this is, you defamed our company. This did damage to us. And, you know, the libel world comes on a three-legged stool. Number one, you the story wasn't true. Right. We've established pretty well the story's not true. Number two, when you wrote the story, you knew it wasn't true. Now, remember, they're quoting the president who's claiming it's a fraud. That's news. you got to print that. You know, uh, he's got investigators and his lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani, making very specific mm-hmm. charges. OK, that's true. So number three. Yeah, but hold you, on a second. We'll, we'll, so, we'll get okay, right back okay, there. Okay, number three, <laughs> you have to prove that when you printed it, you know, you knew 
you, you did it with malice right. because you already knew it wasn't true. The problem with number two, which is, was it true or not? I mean, did you do it in good faith? Is the discovery is telling us two things. Number one, they were printing it. And number two, they were saying to each other, we know it's not true. Yeah. So this is a bad place. Now, Rupert Murdoch has $20 billion and he can write a check for 1.6 and the whole place doesn't go out of business. But it's very bad for Fox News as an entity if they go to trial and they lose this case because it is a finding of fact by a jury that their news organization was actually a political organization. Okay, well, that, I mean, that tells right. me that, that Rupert Murdoch is just going to cut a check for the $1.6 billion of chump change. I right? don't think Dominion settles. I think they want to see it at trial. Because I hope so. I think that they the brand is ruined, right? This they ruined the brand with this malicious. I, I mean, wouldn't what, go that far, Molly. I just wouldn't. I wouldn't what, go that far. They, they still have a ton of viewers who like what they're selling. No, I'm saying the brand of Dominion. 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 Oh, the Dominion people. Dominion's like, brand is reputation. I mean, I Dominion's challenges. They're going to have to prove that they, you know, that these damages to them, you know, that they've lost 1.6 billion dollars in business. That's going to be but hard. Can you imagine a Republican governor get buying Dominion right. voting machines now? They never. What? I mean, they've done incalculable damage to the Dominion brand. All the more reason to have this trial, to get that story all the way out. Well, these little pieces keep, you know, seeping out every night. So this is going to continue and we'll see what happens in mid-April. Everyone stay with me. Would you go back to summer camp if you could? Well, good news, you can. We'll tell you about it next. Why should kids have all the fun? If you've ever wondered that, now is your chance to get in on the action. The Maryland Zoo in Baltimore is offering a summer camp for adults. Discuss. <laughs> who, who, how many of us wish we could go to a summer camp for adults? 100% in. Me too, but you I don't get want to... the animals. Oh, I want the animals. You do? I was surprised there's no wine involved. I read oh, it doesn't seem like there is. Yeah, that's not I want animals and alcohol. Animal and alcohol. Okay, I like your summer camp. Okay, what do you have a summer camp fantasy? So my summer camp, I actually already have planned out. I'm very excited. Oh. It's Beyonce, Madonna, and Pink. They're all on tour this summer. They're all on tour this summer. They're all on tour this summer. So you guys can hang out with the penguins and a glass of wine. I'll be on tour with the divas on tour. That's pretty awesome. That's a roving summer camp. Roving summer camp. I like roving musical summer camp. Do you have a a summer camp fantasy? It's called Europe. (laughs) It is. Go there, yes. But I mean, you're just then you're just going like with your family or your friends. That's yeah. not like a summer camp. I mean, I never liked summer. I mean, this is my we're getting into my psyche here, but I never really liked summer camp. <gasps> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, well, I don't I know if I like the, I, don't, I don't know if I like the insect and tent right, the, living summer camp. I right. mostly mean like having fun for an extended period somewhere with adults. That, all right, I'll go for That's that, as long as there's no lake or anything. Right, no lake. <laughs> and, and again, no planes or lakes. Okay. No, right. right. And, and again, I don't need the zoo animals at my I camp. need the zoo animals. Okay, that's cool. So we're signing you up for this. John, your summer camp experience? I was, I was with Molly. I hated going to summer camp. I didn't want to get on the bus. Oh. I wanted, couldn't wait to get home. Yeah. How you long know. did you go for uh, a couple of summers. Like, you see, know. I pictured you as a camp counselor. All right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Uh, they're wrapping me. Thank you all for that. Okay. M- meanwhile, do you feel like you're hearing about more near misses and other planned incidents more than usual? We do, too. We're going to have experts here with us to tell us if this is true right after this.
The FAA facing tough questions from lawmakers today after a series of troubling incidents in the air and on the ground this year. In January and February alone, there were at least six close calls of planes on runways. We've also seen more incidents of severe turbulence. All of this on top of outages, pilot shortages, and overworked staffers. The head of the Allied Pilots Association had a simple message to the FAA. Do your job. Well, we're seeing a system that is under stress. Pilots across the nation have well over a year have been talking about this. We've got airlines scheduling us to the maximums. They're reducing pilot training. Uh, They are basically running along a barbed wire fence right up to the maximums. And we shouldn't be surprised when we see these safety seals start to leak. So this has got to stop and be aligned. What we need is for the airlines, the FAA to do their job. Okay, I have my panel standing by, but first I want to bring in our experts. We have Jeff Davis, who follows transportation spending for the Eno Center for Transportation, and instructor pilot Ryan Antoon. He's a commissioner for the Los Angeles County Aviation Commission. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Ryan, I want to start with you as a pilot and as someone who trains pilots, because I'm I'm actually most concerned about these severe turbulence incidents, because that's very freaky to me, how many of these we have seen recently. And it's clear sky turbulence, Ryan. So you're, you're flying along. It looks like a beautiful day. And then the plane suddenly plunges 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet, 3,000 feet. I mean, that, that one that was heading um, from Austin on a Lufthansa flight to Germany that um, uh, Matthew McConaughey's wife, Camilla, was on, and she took a video of it. She said it plunged 4,000 feet. So is that happening more often, Ryan? I don't know if we can say it's happening more often. I know there is a study out of the UK that says there there uh, could be some of that in the future, a little bit more frequency. But right now, the clearer turbulence that we see really is, is the same as it's been for the last 30, 40, 50 years. You know, as long as I've been flying commercially, um, the, the seatbelt sign goes off. And the first thing the pilot or the flight attendant says is, please keep your seatbelt fastened while you're in your seat. The, these things happen and they happen uh, not uncommonly. Usually it's relatively mild, but when you see accidents, when you see, I'm sorry, injuries is, is usually a result of people not being restrained properly. And, you know, I think the reason we're seeing more of it now is more because of social media and access and people whip out their phones, just like you're describing. It's scary, just like you're describing. So the first thing you're going to do is want to record it and you're going to want to you're going to want to understand what happened. And what used to be a story that you would tell your friends a couple months later. Now it's it's all over social media. And it's it's uh, on the on the news later that day. But Ryan, do have you had this experience? And what does a pilot do when that happens? I mean, when when they because in these cases, what we've heard is that the pilots had no warning. So often a pilot will say, folks, put your your seatbelt on. We've had warning from a plane ahead of us. We're going to approach turbulence. But these are no warning. So what do you do when that happens? Well, the NTSB said, I I believe it was 2009 to 2019 or 2018, they said almost 30% of these were unpredictable. Um, But that's 10 years ago. Technology is catching up. We do have better and better resources available in the cockpit to predict it, to see it, and, and to get out of it. And I think that as time goes on, hopefully the technology will catch up to any predicted increase in clear turbulence incidents. One thing that you just mentioned was that 
study out of the UK in 2019 that talked about whether climate change was enhancing this, and, and or I guess I should say exacerbating it. And here's a little clip from that. Climate change has made turbulent flights more likely in much the same way that it's made heat waves more likely as well. Climate change is strengthening clear air turbulence at all flight levels, in all seasons, everywhere around the world where there's a jet stream. That is worrisome, of course. Is that your experience, too? Do you think that it is? I mean, I know you've said that it, we're just capturing it more, but do you think that it is likely going to happen even more? It's hard to say. If I have personal experience, my anecdotal experience, I encounter turbulence every day. I fly most days out of the week. Um, sometimes you encounter it around storms. Sometimes you're, you're sailing along in clear skies and you and you get knocked around pretty badly. But uh, you know, whether or not it's becoming more frequent right now, I think the study that we're talking about was looking not just right now, but also 2030 to 2080 was sort of a time frame where we're looking at sort of a, a more dramatic increase. And the hope is that, again, you know, technology will keep up with that. And the tools that I have at my disposal when I'm flying, I can look at turbulence available and clear air turbulence predictions available at all altitudes. So although, yeah, we're seeing, according to that study, there could be more out there. Um, I also have the ability to detect more of it. So that 30 detectable rate that the NTSB is talking about from the last 15 years, that hopefully will change over the next 15 years. Okay, that's comforting. All right, Jeff uh, Davis, I want to turn to you now. So from the FAA perspective, um, at the same time that we've heard of more of this turbulence, there are also more near misses happening. So I have a graphic here of just some of the incidents that we've reported on through January and February. So what is that about, in your opinion? Um, it's hard to tell, um, but it's not about more planes being out there uh, because while before COVID, the, the, the most number of passengers that we had in the skies and the airs uh, peaked in 2019 pre-COVID, but the number of planes in the U.S. airspace being handled by air traffic control peaked back in 2000. You had a long slide uh, as planes got more crowded and then airlines switched uh, from to slightly larger planes. So that able, enabled the, the FAA to deal with the uh, huge bulge of air traffic control retirements in the 2000s and try to get back on, on, on a better control. So it, it's not uh, overcrowding necessarily, maybe at peak hours, but we're just trying to figure out if it's just a, if that January, February uh, uh, number of near misses was just uh, statistical noise, as it were, or if it's a real trend. And Jeff, what about the, the shortage of workers? So we've heard about pilot shortages and then... Um, I was also reading that the FAA cut new air traffic controller hires in half from 1,000 to 500. Why? They seem vitally important. And then there's also seems to be a problem with the demands, uh, I think, that you were spelling out in your notes for co-pilots, that they've increased the number of hours needed. And so that is making it harder to find them. Um, There's a lot of uh, workplace issues involved. On the controller side, uh, they're trying to build back up after all of the Remember that Ronald Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers in 1981. So you had this atypical workforce bulge of people who were all going to retire after 30, 35 years in. That happened in the mid-2000s. We're reconstructing the workforce now. Uh, the problem is that if you, you can't do that remotely during COVID. Uh, they had to cut a, a half a year's classes out uh, during 2021, I believe, for COVID. And uh, they're trying to increase the, right now. They're aiming for about 1000 new controllers through the academy a year. And then it's a two year apprenticeship and work after that. Uh, 
one thing that's going to be a problem, we're probably going to have another one of those government shutdowns this year uh, because the Republicans and Democrats are so far apart in the budget. And that has a ruinous effect on the Air Traffic Controller Academy in Oklahoma. A two-week shutdown means they close the entire academy, send everybody home, uh, cancel all the contracts with all the instructors, and then two weeks later have to bet out new contracts to start it up. So you, you lose half a year's worth of controller trainees every time you government shutdown. So that's something else to watch out for this year. Jeff, on that's, the pilot yeah, side, yeah, go ahead. On the pilot side, uh, the U.S. years ago moved the mandatory retirement age from 60 to 65 for airline pilots, and the rest of the world matched us. After the disaster in 2009 in Buffalo, we also raised the number of hours you have to have behind the stick from 250 to 1,500 to be a co-pilot. The rest of the world has not matched us. So that is an issue uh, that you're having disagreements between the pilots unions and the airlines as to whether we should revisit 1,500. Is that a magic number? Should that still be the target? Um, so those are all that's all really important context. I appreciate you telling us all that. So just before I bring in the panel, Jeff, do passengers have reason to be concerned right now and worried? It's still the safest system in the world. The reason I mentioned the Colgan crash from Buffalo in 2009 is because that's the last significant air crash we had in the United States. Um, it's an amazingly safe system, and uh, that's still the number one uh, priority of everybody at DOT and the FAA is to try to maintain that system. Just the, what we have to do as citizens is figure out, you and I, are, are we willing to trade a system that's 1% less safe for a system that's 10% more convenient? You know, everyone has a different little uh, danger metric in their head, and we have to express that to our politicians as to, you know, where our, where our trade-offs on safety versus convenience and economy are. Really important. Thank you both. Um, I feel strangely better at the moment. Um, <laughs> Jeff Davis, Ryan Antoon, thanks so much for being here. I'm sure we will call on your expertise again. I want to bring in our panel now. We have Legal Eagle Joey Jackson, radio host Mike Broomhead, the LA Times' LZ Granderson, and Axios' Jennifer Kingston. Thanks so much for being here, guys. So that was really helpful to hear all that. But when I hear how complicated it is, it just, keep, it just continues to worry me, Mike. Well, let's, uh, let's quote George Carlin. It's not a near miss. It's a near hit. And so that, I'm flying tomorrow. I want to take a bus. I, I'm a little, I'm a little back nervous. To Arizona? I, yes, I do. Back to, and I love to fly. But that turbulence, that's the one thing that's, that shakes me a little. Uh, no pun intended. Yeah. That scares me a little bit. You can't control it. You don't know what it is. And when it gets it bad, coming. And when it gets bad, it's scary. Even a minute, 30 seconds of turbulence feels like an eternity to most of us passengers. And the FAA, FAA knows it has a problem. It's been without a permanent director for about a year. And the acting director has called a safety summit for a week from today where they'll discuss some of these issues. But it can't come soon, soon enough for a lot of us. At Axios today, we reported that new software has been installed at 43 airports around the country to detect uh, planes that are trying to land on the taxiway instead of the runway. That's so good. There are steps being taken. Yes, let's all hope it works. Yeah, but but that 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 development about climate change possibly affecting severe turbulence. It's hard to see how it wouldn't. Right. Right. That makes me nervous because I just wonder. Okay, if you're plunging, are you finding someone else's space? You know, that makes me a little bit nervous. I'm with you. I flew in today, and you know, I now was, you got me worried about one more thing. You know, I. Personally, you know, once you grow up in Detroit, you can survive. <laughs> you, you kind of, you know, you, you, you just kind of. I don't, I don't want to, you know, belittle, you know, the, the concerns that you have being in space. But once you've been in like, like real, real sure. danger, being a little frightened, you put it in context a little bit it. more. 
I three had things. Also, yeah, okay. I had also read that about queer air turbulence being linked to climate change and uh, pilots being unable to predict it and to, uh, say, fasten your seatbelts now. That's really scary, uh, as, as safe as we know flying really is. Yeah. Because as you're flying, you're contributing to climate change. <laughs> it's true. At, the consequence is slapping your plane in the face. Go ahead, Joe. Three things. Safety, safety, and safety. Right? <laughs> there shouldn't be any trade-off. And in the day and age of technology, we're in 2023. We have technology for everything. So where is the technology and why is it not keeping up and with what's happening here, right? If we don't want you on a bus, especially to Arizona, okay, we want you to fly safely across the country. And I think if anybody had to think about the issue of convenience and think about what it would represent, I think people do all they can to know they get from point A to point B in one piece. Their families are happy. But you know how frustrated people are at the airport where they're like, what do you mean my flight's delayed? You know, people get very frustrated. They do, Allison, but does that mean that we start landing planes on top of each other? Does that mean that we start having near hits, misses? whatever it is, right? I I think something needs to give. And I just don't get in this day and age why we should be addressing this. But but we have technology for a whole bunch of other things. We're not a proactive country. You know, the technology has told us we need to replace our bridges. What are we doing? Yeah, we wait to see what happens. I mean, we have technology that gives us warning on on our personal health. But what do we do? We wait to see what happens and we put it off. So that's not our MO as a culture. But isn't the scarier part of this the fact that the pilots are being stressed more, the staff is being stressed more, they're flying more hours, that's when mistakes happen. That concerns me more than the technology, that we're stressing the people that are flying us to where we need to Me too. I'm comforted to hear that they're having a safety summit coming up. I hope that there's something that comes out of that that helps all of us. Thank you all very much for the conversation. Sorry to make you more anxious. (laughs) No, I'm all right. All right, good, good. Um, All right, we've talked... A lot about artificial intelligence and all the things it can do. Next, we'll show you just how easy it is to use AI to fake someone's voice. And of course, what that means if someone has malintent. And I think they're also going to fake my voice. So stick around for that. The AI explosion touching everything from letter writing to art to text chats, even creating fake voices. AI can impersonate people, as you'll see in this next piece. CNN's Donny O'Sullivan uses AI to impersonate himself. Hello? Hi, Mom. Hi, Donny. How are you? Does my voice sound different to you? Yeah, I just said that to Sinead. I said, Donny sounds American. This is not actually me. This is a voice made by computer. Oh my God, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sorry. There has been an explosion in fake audio and voices being generated through artificial intelligence technology. This is an AI cloned version of Walter White's voice. This is an AI cloned version of Leonardo DiCaprio's voice. All you need is a couple of minutes recording of anyone's voice and you can make it seem like they have said just about anything, even Anderson Cooper. We've come here to UC Berkeley today to talk to Hanny Fareed, a digital forensic expert, about just how easy it is to put words into other people's mouths. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> sure. But it's also really scary. I think once you put aside that gee whiz factor, I don't think it takes a long time to look at the risks. This is Wolf Blitzer. Hanny Fareed, you are in the situation room. That sounds, that's that's good. good. I guess that sounds that's pretty good. good. 
By uploading just a few minutes of me and some of my colleagues' voices to an AI audio service, I was able to create some convincing fakes, including this one of Anderson Cooper. Donny O'Sullivan is a real piece of s***. That's AI. <laughs> is it really? That's AI. That's good. Yeah, Anderson is really good. Man. Because Anderson doesn't have a stupid Irish accent. The technology did struggle with my Irish accent, but we decided to put it to the ultimate test with my parents. I am about to try call my mom back in Ireland and see if I can trick her with this voice. Yeah. Think I'm going to be successful? I'm nervous. I'm like, my hands are. <laughs> All right. Hello? Hi, Mom. Hi, Donnie. How are you? Just finished shooting our story here. I'm going to the airport in a while. There seems to be a delay in the phone, Donnie. Can I say a quick hello to Dad? Yep. How you doing, Amy? Hi, Dad. How are you, Dad? How are you? Good yourself? Just finished shooting our story here. I'm going to the airport in a while. How are you? Oh, you'll come back. You'll come back again, Amy. Are Kerry playing this weekend? My dad went on to have a conversation with the AI Doni about how Kerry, our home football team, had a game that weekend. Eventually, I had to come clean. Dad, I'll give you a call better later on. Could you just put me back on to mom for a second? My parents knew something was off, but ultimately they still fell for it. Oh yeah, some of it don't be bad, but it was like, um, it was like your voice was a little tone lower and it sounded very serious. Yeah. Like you were something serious to say. Because I went, oh, geez, my heart was hopping first. Oh, sorry. The voice is very funny. The voice is very funny. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right, Tony. I'll call you later, Dad. Okay, bye bye. Bye bye. Is this not classic? The mom is like, something's wrong with my son. The dad's like, everything's fine. (laughs) I'd like to close out today's ceremony with a question. If you were given a choice, would you choose to have unlimited bacon but no more video games? With fake Biden and Trump recordings going viral online, Fareed says this could be something to be wary of going into the 2024 election. When we enter this world where anything can be fake, any image, any audio, any video, any piece of text, nothing has to be real. We have what's called the liar's dividend, which is anybody can deny reality. With a flood of new AI tools releasing online, he says companies developing this powerful technology need to think of its potential negative effects. There is no online and offline world. There's one world, and it's fully integrated. When things happen on the internet, they have real implications for individuals, for communities, for societies, for democracies. And I don't think we as a field have fully come to grips with our responsibility here. In the meantime, I'll continue annoying my colleagues. Hear this thing Anderson said. I've been doing this a long time. I have to say, Donnie O'Sullivan is probably the best in the business. Incredible. It's very kind of him to say that. It's really, you know, you should be honored, really. CNN's Donny O'Sullivan joins us now. My panel is back with me also. This is all fun and games Mm -hmm. until some evil genius takes over the world, which sounds like it could happen now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, we took a lighthearted look at it there, but obviously, you know, it doesn't take a massive leap of the imagination to figure out what could go wrong here. Everything from scams to people breaking into your bank accounts, some services have voice recognition technology, to, of course, the 2024 election. You think about... You know, things like the Access Hollywood tape, how critical role tapes have played in, in election campaigns down through the years. 
It's not a theoretical threat. No. It's already a very real threat, and companies have lost millions of dollars to it. There's a cybersecurity company called Symantec that has reported, without using the names of the companies, mm. that there's a big scam that has gone on repeatedly in which uh, criminals take the voice of the CEO recorded on an earnings call, on a YouTube video, a TED Talk, and they use it to call the controller or someone with the power of the purse and say, you need to immediately transfer money to this account. Companies have lost a lot of money, and uh, not only in the business world, but in the political world, as you pointed out in your piece, this is a big danger and something that can be used to entertain, but also uh, to do very a lot of damage. You know, I hear what you're saying, and the money scares me. The relationships scare me more. Mm. Can you imagine... If you think your man is cheating on you, yes. what you could do with a fake I mean, voice. All of it. Relationships. Oh, all the relationships. All the relationship oh, my stuff. gosh. Yes. I'm, I, like, I, I'm like, yes, the money's bad, but <laughs> my God, America, no. get your affairs in order. <laughs> Literally. And to make a voice like that, you only need about a minute of anybody. Oh. Okay, that's funny that you say that because the team tells me that they've done my voice in AI. Mm-hmm. And it, they, they will have fake <laughs> Allison ask you, a question now. So let's hear okay. how lifelike it is. Go. All right, Donnie, we just heard AI Anderson calling you a piece of, you know what, how are we going to know if what we're seeing and hearing are real or not? <laughs> yes, it does. does it really? Oh, yes, it does. It yeah, sounds it like work. you, but it, the, the delivery is not you. It's a big, you know, the, quick, the pace. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's but a it little higher. Like, it. like, it does sound a little robot. It's like I'm talking like this. Yeah. So there is, and, and that is, you know, the experts who we spoke to, um, they're the kind of clues that you can look out for at the moment. But look. What are the clues? Uh, things like, I mean, exactly what you kind of described there, that the pacing can seem a little off, that it can sound a little tinny, like, you know, a little robotic-y. Um, but I think we have another one, if you want to. Okay, let's hear. Here, I'm going to ask you another. Fake Allison is going to ask you another <laughs> question. Okay, go ahead. You mentioned people are worried about this technology being used for misinformation, potentially in the 2024 election. What are people doing to prepare for that? So that sounds quite a bit Whoa. more accurate, right? Yeah. Especially the top of it there. At the top yeah. it did. Yeah. But I didn't take a this breath. This is already being used uh, on the personal level as a scam against the elderly because yeah. uh, uh, fraudsters are report- recording the voice, say, of your grandson or your granddaughter mm-hmm. and calling up grandma to say, I'm injured, I need some money, I'm in trouble, please send me money. And sure. older people who may have hearing troubles are, are falling for this. Uh, this is a very real danger. It is. We need to... nip this in the bud right now. And as with all things with technology, I don't think we're going to, but this does seem very frightening. They say that they have one more question for you, Donnie, from Fake Allison. It's an important question. Okay. It has been pretty stressful for real Allison to work five nights a week, so I'm really wondering... When will this technology be good enough for the real me to take a night off? <laughs> that did sound like me. <laughs> uh, what's, the, what's the answer? <laughs> I look, I mean, I look, you know, we laugh about it. <laughs> but uh, what we have seen with, with you know, uh, with the ChatGBT app and things like that, with the text side of things, um, some news organizations are trying to uh, put in place 
AI tools uh, to write articles instead of real uh, journalists. But I think you're you're safe. You're safe for now. I don't know, Donnie. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just hearing that Maybe. and watching what you did with your parents and everything. I don't know if any of us are. My safe. parents are never going right to believe. Now. By the way, when I call them again, they're going to be like, "Is this really you?" <laughs> they're adorable. Um, Donnie, thanks for bringing that to, to our attention. Thanks, Jennifer, for, for telling us all of that. It's I think it's nerve wracking. But thank you all very much. Meanwhile. Voters in Oklahoma rejecting the legalization of recreational marijuana in a special election yesterday. Polls show a majority of Americans believe pot should be legal. So why are Oklahomans disagreeing? We have that next. Marijuana approval is at an all-time high in the U.S. All-time high. Hmm. But voters in Oklahoma last night rejected a proposal to allow recreational marijuana in their state with more than 60% of the voters. I'm back with our panel. Okay, raise your hands. Who likes the idea of legalizing pot? One person on the panel likes legalized pot for recreational and medicinal use. Okay, make your case. Why is it good for recreational use? Um, To legalize it. Well, one... With this case in particular, the bill would have also expunged the records of the individuals who were caught with something minor, right? So I know that the headline is no recreational pot, but also, oh, by the way, poor people are still being punished for something that rich people are doing now. So I'm for, rec- I'm for legalizing it for that one. And then two, we all know this is a ruse. You know, because if medical marijuana is legal, that means you just need to have a physician say, yeah, your back is awful. You can either take these Tylenol or I can give you a prescription for medical marijuana. Mm. Okay, Jennifer? And 10% of the people in Oklahoma already have uh, yep. prescriptions for it. I guess they just didn't want to be known as Toklahoma. <laughs> uh, look, uh, states that have legalized marijuana are uh, reaping huge tax windfalls. Uh, Colorado was the first to legalize it for recreational purposes, and since 2014, they have uh, pulled in point. Uh, $4.3 billion in tax revenue that they use to uh, build schools, mental health, social services. So then why be opposed to it? I mean, that sounds like a great byproduct. Right, right. You know, and we the uh, downside, we hear stories about uh, children and dogs getting into their parents' stash. So they're bad uh, potential problems. But uh, some of the dire warnings that were issued before Colorado took this grand experiment a decade ago have not come true. So uh, it remains to be seen how the nation is going to go on this. Mike, I read your notes. You say you have never even tried marijuana. Never. I'm pretty boring. Wow. Never have. I never have. Never done it. I have a lot of friends that did. Don't worry, I'm not going to say your names. But I have friends that did in school, so it wasn't anything that freaked me out or I thought was really dangerous. It just was never my thing. I never, I've never smoked a cigarette because the idea of putting any smoke in my lungs just was never attra- appealing to me. Good for you. I mean, I'm from New Jersey. I didn't know it was allowed not to. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'll have good. a drink. It's not like I'm a, a prude, but I've just been. Never... You're, you're, you're fun. You're, yeah. I, I'm not saying I'm not taking away your fun card. But wasn't but, it so Merle what? Haggard that said we don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee like the hippies in San Francisco do? <laughs> so they, this is a, we knew this was coming. Merle Haggard told us this. According to Haggard, in the '60s, <laughs> well, he said it in the '60s. That's funny. But uh, forget the personal note. In terms of a state. 
I mean, you heard what Jennifer said. It really yeah. benefits a state. So they legalized you- it in Arizona. First it was legalized medically and then it was legalized. We did it by a ballot proposition, which I'm not a big fan of because it alters our Constitution. But it, this is one of those issues that has no bearing on my life. So I'm very neutral on this because it's not going to hurt me if somebody else smokes it. It's just not something I've ever done. Right. But do you are you in favor of a state legalizing recreational marijuana? I, I don't. I'll be honest. I, I don't care if Arizona benefits from it. If we are getting money into the like you said, in the tax coffers, I have no problem with it. It's not a moral decision for me. I don't see it as a gateway drug. I know other people do. Um, but it's not something that I would champion for, and it's not something I would lobby against. So I tried marijuana, but I didn't inhale. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard that before, have we not? We have. Yes, we have. Um, listen, I'm tired enough at all times. <laughs> I can't have anything make me more tired than I am now. I, that's hard to right? believe that you're tired, so, Joey. I, I see I you as a bundle you know, of energy. I sit, I sit on the couch and I'm done. Anything else would just be too much. But the only thing is, I feel like every time I walk out of my building, I get high. Yes. I mean, I'm like, it's unbelievable. Where's it's all over two blocks away. <laughs> <laughs> two blocks away. Just, you know, so, out of curiosity. reporting. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, Elsie? You make a very good point in terms of, you know, the, the ballot proposition and how it would take it off your record. But I think we can take those two things and separate them. And we shouldn't conflate one thing with the other. To each their own. People can do what they do, how they do. None of my business. But uh, if it's only if it's legal, is it none of your business? Yes, but it's medically. Oklahoma, I think in 2018, they said, OK, for medicinal purposes, we're all good. All and right. Think, From a doctor's perspective. I think we also need to take into account that Oklahoma won, uh, instead of having the election in November, they did it in March, right? So the numbers were going to be suppressed anyway. Two, they had a horrific sh- murder last year where four Chinese nationals were murdered at some illegal pot uh, farm in Oklahoma. And that freaked people out, and this should have. And then three, and this is most important, the government screwed up. Surprise, surprise. They issued too many licenses to, right out the gate. So there was like the saturation of, of, of dispensaries in a place. I, was, I read that they have, what, 10 times the amount that California has in terms of licenses that have been issued. So they didn't execute it right. Yeah. They had the horror. They got the opioid crisis. I can understand why it didn't pass. It wasn't even close, though, right? The no. ballot proposition was so lopsided. What was it, 70 to 30 percent? So I think it said 61, but, no. but um, th- that's all really interesting context. That makes yeah. sense. I agree with you that the social justice issue is an important argument for legalization. One problem, though, when states try to pass these, these laws piecemeal is the uh, dissonance with the federal ban on uh, marijuana. Uh, fed- it's still illegal on the on the national level, uh, which means that marijuana-related businesses can't do their banking. Banks won't touch that money, so they're largely cash businesses. And that feeds the uh, uh, perception or perhaps reality that there's fraud involved, that, that there's something underhanded about it. But do you need a ballot proposition to take away someone's conviction or something for marijuana? Do you need a ballot proposition or do you just convene the state legislature and say, look, the mores and values are changing. If you got a conviction for marijuana, perhaps we should reconsider yeah, it. And I don't think you should separate it out. Yeah, Absolutely. What about <clears throat> what about employment? Police officers, firefighters, pilots, where they still have restrictions because of their qualifications, because it's federally illegal. But then you how do you drug test people? If you're a cop, you can test for some things like alcohol. How do you test when people are high? I mean, these are all things that play into this, too. Yeah, got it. Thank you all very much. Stay with me, because the U.S. saw a lot more births in 2021 than the year before. 
What caused that? <laughs> if only doctors could figure it out. Um, did working from home because of the pandemic lead to a baby boom? We tell you the answer. After decades of a declining birth rate, the U.S. experienced a baby boom in 2021. What caused the baby explosion? Researchers think. Researchers? It, researchers. <laughs> yes, Elsie. This is science, Elsie. <laughs> don't bring your dirty mind into this. This is science that I'm talking about. Sorry. Researchers think it could be tied to more people working from home. What kind of work would that be? We're back with the panel. Um, okay, so the, uh, I'll give you the stats. This is real research, Elsie. Birth rate jumped 6.2%, and births among U.S. mothers increased by 46,000 children, more than expected. More than expected. Okay, you predicted this was going to happen, Mike. Yeah, we did it on the show. We, were, we asked the question, do we think there's going to be more babies or more divorces? And it's got to be 50-50. But we, we, at the very beginning of this, what, I don't want to be crude, but what are you going to do? I mean, you're, you're, there's only so much you can watch on Netflix. The, the chill part's got to come in somewhere. You're supposed to be working at home. You're supposed to be more productive at home, not reproductive. Well, it wasn't a Zoom call. It wasn't. Good. We're that's doing good. it on a Zoom call, but that, you had to know that's what people were doing. This is reassuring because I've read so many news articles about how young people are so uh, riddled with angst over climate change that they don't want to bring children into the world uh, where glaciers are melting. But apparently they're okay if there's a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) But but think about the the practicality of it, right? Why do you not have children or as many as you want? People are working. You don't have as much time to spend with them. There's little family bonding, right? You're trying to get the work-life balance. If you're working at home, right, then you have the ability to bond as a family. And why not bring someone else into the family or someone else, 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 many babies into the family, if you could spend quality time that all families look for. See, so it only makes sense. Joey's introducing the family-friendly so, version of right. this, which is this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I was no, saying this was purely accidental. Purely accidental. I want to hear because me. people aren't dressed, basically, yeah. and right. they're not wearing clothes at home. Right. Joey <laughs> thinks it's like by choice yes. that people are spending yes. more time with their children and deciding to have a bigger family. The only numbers I really want to know is how much Luther Vandross was down strictly. <laughs> right? How much, you know, Teddy Pendergrass. Very true. Yes. <laughs> Very true. That folks would music. tell us. That would tell a us. A lot. Right. Yes. Um, and the breakdown by states that have legalized marijuana. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's right. But if we're taking Joey's version, which is that by being at home, primarily women felt that they could balance better their childcare and their work life. That leads us to the four-day work week, which always comes up because that supposedly would help all of us on every level. If I'm a manager, I hate the four-day work week. If I'm an employee, I love it. Uh, And I do think that there's an argument that uh, it would enhance uh, gender equity because if people are working four days a week, then there's, and they have remote work, there's more of a chance for, uh, you know, both sides of the couple in a, uh, you know, heterosexual couple to contribute to the child care. I just don't see uh, corporate America going for it quite yet. I don't think we're there. You know what, though? Isn't it at the end of the day about productivity? And if you can be productive and do perhaps even more work because you have four days to fit it in and you're geared up, you're locked in. You're that's not the argument. Be, well, right. I mean, if you could be more productive at the end of the day, I think that's what employers want. So and why some not? studies yeah. suggest that a four day work week does make you more productive. I, I mentioned to you before we talked about this, um, we were I was a contractor, I was an electrical contractor on big jobs. There's rollout in the morning, roll up in the afternoon. If you do that. 20% less over a one-year job. That is productivity. And my guys 
loved working four 10-hour days, getting Friday off and having a three-day weekend. And it made them, we really saw productivity go up. I know you can't do it in every profession, but in construction, it was great. Yeah, sounds great to me, as you heard my fake Allison AI voice say. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) What's the real Allison? Who knows? You're irreplaceable. Seven days a week for Allison. What? (laughs) All right, panel, stay with me. Has anyone ever eaten sushi off of a conveyor belt? Eateries in Japan are experiencing what is being translated as sushi terrorism. We'll explain it next. Something fishy is going on at sushi restaurants in Japan, particularly these popular conveyor belt style restaurants. The Washington Post reports that there's new viral videos that show pranksters tampering with the sushi. The practice is called sushi terrorism, and it looks like that. You see what he's doing? He just licked the bowl and put it back on the conveyor belt. Now, two of the top sushi conveyor belt restaurants are switching back to ordering from an actual human. I'm back with my panel. I know this is supposed to gross me out, but it makes me hungry. That the idea of, of seeing like all different kinds of sushi on the conveyor I've never been to a sushi conveyor belt um, restaurant, but I want to go now because I like the <laughs> I've idea. I've that. You yeah, still want to go? Yeah, I want to go because I like the idea of being able to choose as the sushi floats by which pieces I want. Like, I don't want that one. I want the next one right there. And sometimes when I go to sushi restaurants, I have... Um, Order envy, because somebody else ordered, like, a better-looking piece of sushi than me, but I didn't know what it was on the menu. That creeps me out. Does somebody look at your food? Yeah, I'm not a germaphobe, <laughs> but that creeps me out. Well, because I know what I would do and my friends would do, and I, I don't want to be punked by somebody with something that I'm going to eat. That freaks me out a little bit. I've looked at some of these viral videos, and uh, shockingly, a uh, large number of the sushi terrorists appear to be teenage boys. Mm, shocking. Shocking. Right. shocking. I wasn't able to find the video mentioned in the Post article that said that a cigarette butt was put out Ooh. in a tray Trisha of uh, ginger. Yes. Pickled, Pickled ginger. ginger, yes. That yes. one was a bummer. I do know that uh, automation is coming to restaurants, in part because of the labor shortages that we've heard so much about, but it's mostly coming to the back of the house. There are robots that can uh, fry tortilla chips, that can uh, brew the coffee, that can flip the burgers. Mm. And uh, these are fun uh, labor-saving devices that are that are uh, largely invisible to the public. But the robots that are being used as servers, people like to say, take selfies with them, but they spill your soup. Uh, they're, uh, they, they get lost on the way to the, your table, and they uh, can't field any complaints about your, your order getting messed up. Oh, so they're like people. That's right. Yeah, right. right. So, so I've never true. seen a robot wait on someone at, at a restaurant. Uh, a number of chains that have tried them have put them out there, and uh, people have uh, sabotaged them a bit, uh, and they've been withdrawn. But but uh, there's the hope springs eternal. You're likely to see a robot server at a place near you coming. And thanks soon. to AI, it may have your voice. Yes. If All right. Sure. So well, you got to be careful about that. You have to have a voice, definitely. But here's a solution to the conveyor belt problem of somebody putting out a cigarette in your pickled ginger, our producer Jeff, for his home, ordered his own sushi train. <laughs> this is in his house, Jeff's sushi train. Look how, uh, he did this, I think, during COVID. <laughs> People did babies? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think he made babies. He, he ordered a sushi train, but I'll find out about that. And doesn't that look awesome? It does. Amazing. That looks cool. That looks super cool. For a cool. party, that would be fun. I totally agree. But the difference is there's no one who can take the sushi off and damage it and do other things to it that make it 
not edible. Yeah. You know, I just, it's just too, like, buffet table sneaks guard adjacent for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just... It's just, there's nothing about that. I tried it once. You in did go L- to I, I went to one in L.A., and I looked, and I saw some of the people picking up sushi and putting it back on the belt. They don't tell you that part. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, nah, yeah. nah. no. It is a cafeteria feel. Yeah, for sure. All right, um, friends, thank you very much. Really fun night. Thanks so much for being here. And thanks to you for watching. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.